Before we begin this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I just very quickly wanted to say thanks to everyone for listening to the show. It's been a busy week. We received a lot of emails from cooks and chefs in support of our last episode about the Michelin Guide. We are taking the time to write back to everyone, and thanks to all of you for writing in and telling us your own stories. If you want your restaurant to be shout out on the show, or if you want to write to us for any reason at all, please reach us at letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com. Or you can follow us at Let's Talk About Chef on Instagram, or you can follow me personally at Chef Brian Clark. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. There is something to be said for simplicity. One, two, three ingredients on a plate, nothing more. The honesty that it takes to serve simple food can be misleading. We are taught from television and Instagram that food should be complex, should always have a variety of ingredients, that plates should have flowers, dots of sauce, different colors. And sure, all of that can be delicious, and it is. And for a chef, it can be very safe to do. But the bravery and sheer comfort that you have to have in yourself to serve a dish with only two things on a plate, cooked to perfection, each one perfectly balancing the other, is astounding. The real magic trick that is taking place is not in the presentation of the two ingredients on a plate. It is in the preparation of the two. The knowledge, memories, and failures that led to that moment when you first made something as seemingly simple as an off-cut of pork astounding. Food used to be, and in some ways still is, the great divider. The rich kept the best parts of the animals for themselves. The steaks, the chops, the ribs all ended up on the wealthy table, and while the rest was left to the servants, slaves, or the poor, who over the centuries figured out how to make these weird pieces of meat, glands, and tendons amazing. If we're being honest, anyone can take a ribeye or a T-bone steak and make it taste good. Just season it, cook it in a pan, yes a pan, not a grill, and with way too much butter, garlic, and herbs, and there you go. But it takes a person who is completely desperate to figure out how to debone a pig's foot, cook it for hours, and somehow through the magic of time and patience and perseverance, make it taste a thousand times better than a steak ever could. It takes a special kind of hunger to look at the tail of a pig and think to oneself, I bet I can make this beautiful. That knowledge, passed down from generation to generation, has a way of disappearing. It has a way of becoming lost, and it takes a special person to decide to bring it back from history and also to take the time to figure it all out. It takes a completely insane person to open a restaurant dedicated to it. The St. John in London, in 1994, became one of the most important and influential restaurants to ever open its doors. It was a shining light, a beacon to chefs across the globe, and before it took its well-deserved place amongst other great restaurants on top ten lists and stellar reviews by some of the culinary world's greatest writers, it remained a very closely guarded secret. It was a restaurant for chefs. It was a place that chefs would spend their little money to make their pilgrimage to and eat the humble, perfect country cooking that very quickly made England an exciting food country again. It invented the term and concept of nose-to-tail eating, farm-to-table, using every part of the animal, even having the sheer audacity to put something as humble and simple as roasted bone marrow onto a menu in London, England during the height of French fine dining. 
If you have seen sweetbreads, hanger steak, bone marrow, offal, pig's tails, pork belly, or even the head of any animal on a menu, it came from the St. John. And you do not get any of that without the man we are talking about today. A man who only 10 years after revitalizing the English concept of food was struck down with Parkinson's disease in his early 30s and had to retire from cooking. Although it hasn't stopped him from being one of the most interesting men in the world. Welcome to this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And this week we are diving into the life, legacy, brilliance and sheer nerve of the fantastic Fergus Henderson. Fergus Henderson is not a trained chef. He was born in London in 1963 to two architect parents and grew up in a very comfortable life. He could remember eating around the dinner table with his family and guests his parents would bring to entertain, and he was swept away with the majesty of it all. His father said to him that the white tablecloth meetings every day kept their family together, and that idea of sitting down and taking the time to eat and enjoy oneself wormed its way into his brain. Lunch for Fergus is not a meal. It is an experience, one that he favors over dinner. Lunch has become in our modern way of life a method to eat something quickly and continue working. Grab something fast and casual and scarf it down for the sugar and calories and keep going. But Fergus is different. Lunch to him should be respected. In his opinion, even then as a student with a small budget, lunch had limitless opportunities to turn into an event. If the company is great, the food coming in an endless stream and the wine keeps pouring, lunch is a gourmand's dream meal. And it was lunch that made Fergus change his path. By the time it came time to decide on a career, Fergus went with the most obvious option. He would follow in his parents' and now sisters' footsteps and become an architect. For seven years, he trained at the Architectural Association in Bloomsbury, studying buildings and lines of cement and stone. And when he finally entered the job market, he found himself in an office surrounded by other eager first-year workers striving to make a name for themselves. When the time came for lunch on that first day, he was shocked to see everyone, even the bosses, shoving sandwiches that had been sitting in the fridge in brown paper bags into their mouths while standing over their drawing boards. And maybe, maybe drinking a can of Coke as well. Lunch was sustenance, not an experience. Every day it went on and on, the same thing happened. The lunchtime would come, and the bags of tuna, egg, or deli meat between bread would be brought out soggy and cold and consumed, and Fergus had had enough. He would leave the office and make his way to a pub and enjoy himself. He gave up trying to convince co-worker to join him, telling them that they could stay later if they took an hour to have a nice time, and so every day at lunch he would eat alone, watching London through the window, and his lunches would stretch longer and longer. It was on one of these afternoon retreats to the velvet-covered bar The French House that he very plainly realized that he should become a cook. Food and drink were more important to him than not enjoying life. 
And so he quit the office and went to work in his first kitchen in Notting Hill. This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Tonight, the new single off of Montreal indie legend Kreef's new album Dovetail that is coming out on June 7th from Rockridge Music. You can pre-order the album now and please check out all of Kreef's tour dates at kreef.ca. That's K-R-I-E-F dot C-A. There is a prevailing theory that the attitude, ego, and bravado that comes with being a chef is an inherited trait. Passed down from cooking schools, apprenticeships, and even lives spent in kitchens, the idea of authority, that the chef is the all-consuming god in that space, is learned. The rules of how a kitchen is run is a very standard machine, but Fergus Henderson was not a trained chef. He had never worked in a kitchen before, and so this quiet and polite-to-a-fault man made his way quickly up the ranks in his first kitchen because his altogether positive attitude and demeanor dismantled the classically trained chefs around him. His theory that if cooks are happy, they make happy food is not something you would ever hear about in a kitchen in London in the early 90s or even today. It wasn't long before he became head chef of the Globe in Notting Hill with a unique and different attitude towards kitchens. Everyone was a team, no shouting, no yelling, let's enjoy ourselves. And it was with this new way of food in kitchens that he met his soon-to-be wife Margot, who was an extremely talented cook in her own right. In 1992, the couple took over his favorite bar, the French House in Soho, tag-teaming the kitchen, and turning the former bar into a quaint and honestly sublime simple restaurant. They worked together for two years, and their combined talents and Fergus's philosophy on simple food and being happy began to attract attention from diners and critics alike. It was at the restaurant in Soho that a thought began to swirl around in his head. As he watched other restaurants in London get more and more complicated in their replicating of French classics, the national foods of England were still a laughingstock of the culinary world. Chefs from Italy, France, and Germany would scoff at the fish and chips, deep-fried everything diet that was associated with England, but Fergus didn't see it that way. The real national food of his home country was not found in the bottom of a deep fryer. It was not in the copying of a scoffier or bocuse. It had always been there in the countryside. The farmers had the secrets all along, and he was going to be the man to bring that food off of the history pages and back onto plates. Nothing would come from anywhere but England, no importing of meat, game, or cheese. He would cook the simple and yet extremely complicated food of his homeland, and it would be supplied by his homeland. But first, he needed a venue. The St. John is housed in a former bacon smokehouse on the outskirts of London. Keeping with Fergus's idea of simplicity, it has bare whitewashed walls, no art, and no music. 
The conversation around the table will be the entertainment, and his food would cater the party. In 1994, the St. John opened its doors, and a soft revolution began. Dishes like squirrel pate, jugged rabbit, and duckneck terrine would be typed onto the menu that changed twice a day, and diners and critics alike were filling the dining room to get a chance to taste what England was actually capable of. The food, although it had become from the past, was somehow blissfully modern, and it took no time at all for the status of the St. John and its chef Fergus Henderson to make its way up the rank of London restaurants. Some diners did leave confused, and some critics left furious. There was a famous incident where legendary writer A.A. Gill, on the evening of his meal at the St. John, wrote such a scathing review of the restaurant that he felt so guilty he actually retracted it. After careful introspection, he said that the food at the St. John actually brought tears to his eyes, he just didn't understand it then. There is one dish that Fergus Henderson will be remembered for. One dish that, as I say, it seems ludicrous that it launched his career and restaurant to international fame. You have seen it on menus everywhere. You have probably eaten a lot of it. And if you have ever spread bone marrow onto a piece of toast, one of the most delicious and utterly satisfying things you will ever eat, you owe a debt to him. Bone marrow and parsley salad. Simply roasted calf bones stood upright, served with buttered toast and a small simply dressed parsley salad. It seems crazy to us now, but that is one of the most important dishes England has ever produced. This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by the new cookbook, Pok Pok Noodle, Recipes from Thailand and Beyond, by acclaimed Portland chef and best-selling author Andy Ricker. You have seen Andy on Parts Unknown, Vice, and of course know him from his award-winning restaurants all under the banner Pok Pok. Pok Pok Noodle is the third book by Andy Ricker, and it is filled with recipes, stories, and the most delicious and satisfying dishes in the Thai culinary canon. You can now buy Pok Pok Noodle wherever you get your books. It came out yesterday. And please be sure to visit one of the Pok Pok restaurants. You will not be disappointed that you did. In 1998, Fergus was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at the age of 35. In only four short years, he and his restaurant had reached the top of London, and now it had to end. The tremor on his left side that he had been ignoring for so long had gotten worse and worse, and over the few short years at the St. John had developed into a noticeable twitching and shaking. Fergus could not cook anymore. Most people when diagnosed with a disease as horrible as Parkinson's can simply give up. They quit and slowly retract themselves from their lives, but not Fergus. On the day his doctors told him that he had the disease, he went out for a very long lunch. And after that, he accepted his fate and moved on. Even though he had to step away from behind his stove, he did not step away from his life. And he became an icon for those living with Parkinson's that it is not, in fact, a death sentence. It just changes things. Fergus became a gourmand. He spent every day in his little quarter of London going out for lunch and writing books in the office at the St. John. He and his wife had three children. The roar that had been the St. John restaurant in the culinary world with him at the helm started to slow. And then, while this was happening, his cookbook Nose Detail Eating was released only in England. The book became something of a religious artifact for chefs, a cult icon. 
People would bring copies back from overseas and hand them around kitchens in New York, Chicago, and Toronto. And slowly but surely, Fergus's food started to show up on menus everywhere. His ideas and concepts became so popular that he himself became the man who brought the world back to simple, honest, and beautiful food. He, without realizing it or trying, had started a revolution, all with a tiny, whitewashed room in a small corner of London. Fergus Henderson never went on television. He never had a food show. He never catered to the food media's demands for his attention. His ideas and methods are why he is known for his food, and that is a very refreshing and wonderful thing to see. In 2005, Fergus underwent an experimental brain surgery to try and stop the now extreme effects of his Parkinson's. The wait list to try this out was years long before his name was called, and he, unsure of what to expect, entered the hospital and hoped for the best. The surgery basically means that doctors drilled a hole into his head and placed wires onto his brain that would shoot electrical surges into the area of nerves that the surgeons have assumed are responsible for the effects of the disease. It was a very quick surgery, and when he woke up in his room surrounded by his wife, children, and a mountain of food from well-wishing chefs, including a reported actual feast sent from friend Jamie Oliver, the tremors weren't happening. Fergus got his life back. He could use a knife again. He could work in his kitchens making food and putting his little mark on history. He could go on no reservations with Anthony Bourdain and even open a hotel with a new location of the St. John, not too far from the original. And he did all that with a new lease on life. He couldn't wait to get started, and he couldn't believe that the tremors were gone. But first, it was lunchtime. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark, and produced by Timothy McDonald. I want to thank Kreef and Andy Ricker for letting us talk about them this week, and please pre-order the album Dovetail, and you can now pick up a copy of Pock Pock Noodle wherever books are sold. I want to give this week's shout-out to Le Comptoire in Paris, France. If you are visiting or live in Paris, please stop in and say hello from us, and thanks to them for writing in. If you want to write to us for any reason at all, send it to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com. Again, I want to thank everyone for listening, and we are back next week with another episode of Let's Talk About Chef. Until then, have a great service, and have a great week.